Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Who here has heard of a journalist named Brian Williams? A few people? Uh, if you don't know about Brian Williams, he was among the most renowned journalists and news anchors uh, in America and really even in the world until at least fairly recently. Uh, he had taken over the much-watched NBC Nightly News. He was on track to become the next Tom Brokaw, which I'm well aware if you're under 40 in the room, that sentence makes no sense to you. Uh, just imagine like the LeBron James of anchoring the news. That's what we're talking about. He was a big deal. Brian Williams was becoming even more and more of a big deal. But all of that for him came to a screeching halt in 2015. In January of that year, Brian Williams talked on the air one night about a time when he was reporting on the war in Iraq, riding around in a helicopter with the military, and the helicopter was actually shot down by a rocket-propelled grenade. According to Williams, his life and his crew's lives were narrowly spared. They were kept alive by an armor-mechanized platoon from the U.S. Army. Now, that's a crazy story, right? Like, that's something you would expect for an award-winning journalist to be involved in, right? Only here's the problem with the helicopter story. It never happened. About two weeks after telling that story on air, Brian Williams had to go back on the air and recant the story as well as apologize for telling it. Because as it turns out, there, there were helicopters that were fired upon that day in the war and, and one of them did have to make an emergency landing. But Brian Williams wasn't in that helicopter. His helicopter was traveling about half an hour behind that one and it had to be grounded because of a sandstorm. Soon after acknowledging that he lied about the story, Brian Williams was demoted from his position as lead anchor, and, and most people would agree that his career has never been the same since then. So what would make a person lie about something like that? I mean, just, just being on a helicopter in a war zone is pretty bold if you're a journalist, right? Like, if I did something like that, for one, you guys would never hear the end of it. Right? Like, I, you would ask me how I was doing in the morning. I'd be like, I don't know, my back's still sore from that war zone helicopter I was on a few years ago. We'd be eating lunch, and I'd be like, you know where there wasn't food. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, to, to be on a helicopter in the middle of a war zone. So, so why embellish the story to say something happened that didn't happen? Well, the answer is pretty simple, because that's a cooler story. And it makes you look like a better journalist. And it makes people respect you and revere you even more than they would otherwise. And it, it, it makes people think that you're an even better journalist. You, you lie about something like that, because even though being in a helicopter in the middle of a war zone is cool, it's not cool enough. Even though it's admirable, it's not admirable enough. And 
apparently garnering the respect and admiration of your peers on a national stage, like the nightly news, apparently is a very dangerous place to be. For the past four weeks, we've been in a series called Killjoys. We're looking at some of the more common enemies of the soul that followers of Jesus tend to face. So far, we've discussed things like busyness, apathy, lust, which are all things that can pose very real threats to your life and your joy in Jesus if they go unchecked in your life. But today, I want us to talk about a more subtle and perhaps even more insidious threat to our joy in Jesus, and that's living for the approval of others. The approval of other people can be one heck of a drug, as anybody witnessing the Brian Williams debacle would be glad to tell you. But I want us to see this morning that living for the approval of others is not limited to people who lie about being in wartime helicopters. I would venture to guess that at least most of us in this room have helicopter stories of our own. Times where we were willing to do almost anything to garner the praise and approval and recognition of other people. Times where we bent over backwards to, to be the type of person that others wanted us or needed us to be and, and to get them to recognize us as being that. The desire for approval is a deep-seated struggle for an awful lot of people. So today, I want us to look at a passage where Jesus touches on that very struggle and, and see what he says that we should do about it, how we should think about it, and how we should respond to it. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the passage that we heard read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. The passage that we are going to look at this morning is right smack in the middle of uh, what people often call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It is essentially a greatest hits collection of Jesus' teaching all in one place. And in this Sermon on the Mount, he covers a whole lot of ground. So he talks about anger, and he talks about conflict, he talks about integrity, he talks about lust, and a whole host of other topics. But in the passage that we are about to read, Jesus is going to address the desire by many people to live for the approval and the applause of others. So let's see what Jesus has to say. We'll read the whole passage again, verses 1 through 4. Look with me in chapter 6. Be careful, Jesus says, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, for instance, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus states his main idea in this passage at the very beginning of what he says. Everything else in the passage, and really everything all the way through verse 18 in chapter 6, is just reiterating and, and practically applying the idea that he states in verse 1. That idea is, quote, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's Jesus' thesis. 
So that word righteousness in verse 1 is used to categorize three different religious activities that Jesus mentions in the verses following. He mentions giving to the needy, we read that one, prayer, and then fasting. And I think that is how you and I tend to think about the word righteousness. To, to most of us, the word righteousness is sort of a religious word used to describe things that religious people tend to do. But I want to argue in our time this morning that this idea of righteousness might actually be much broader than most of us think it is. I think righteousness is actually something that all of us seek after, whether we realize it or not, whether we call it that or not. And, and I think we seek this righteousness out through a lot more things than just religious activities. To unpack why I say that, here's how Pastor Tim Keller describes the idea of righteousness. When in doubt, quote Tim Keller. That's our philosophy around here. He says, to be righteous means I have passed inspection in the eyes of a significant other. I have been found pleasing to someone I want to please. And honestly, I think that definition of righteousness from Tim Keller gets a lot closer to the original meaning of the word that Jesus uses. The, the word righteousness in the original language in Greek is the word dikaiosune, which I wouldn't dare make you try to say on the count of how I'm not even sure I said it right just now. Dikaiosune, you just got to be confident when you say words like that. That's all that matters. So the word dikaiosune actually comes out of a courtroom setting. So in a courtroom in Jesus' day, to be declared righteous meant that the court declared you innocent or in the right. It's when the judge looks at you and says, you are in the right, and I am formally recognizing you as being in the right in front of others. It's, it's this verdict of approval declared over you by someone that you want or need approval from. So practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them, I think is way bigger than just religious practices like giving to the poor or praying or fasting. Practicing your righteousness could, could actually include anything that we do for the express purpose of being seen by others and approved of by them. Does that make sense? So, so follow me here. You can do religious things to be seen and approved of by others, like fasting or praying or worshiping or hypothetically teaching the Bible in a room full of people. Big yikes for me there, right? You, you can do religious things for the purpose of being seen by others. You can also do irreligious things for the purpose of being seen and applauded by others. For instance, hypothetically, if your name is Sam Smith and you're performing at the 2023 Grammys. Hypothetically, right? Uh, you can do good things to be seen by, to, in order to be seen by others. Things like helping someone or caring for someone or being generous towards someone. You can do that, but still do it for the purpose of being seen and applauded for doing it. You can do bad things to be seen by others, like acting out or throwing a fit or constantly complaining about your life. You can do those things and still be doing them primarily for the purpose of being seen and recognized by others. You can even do neutral things for this purpose, things like posting to social media or wearing certain brands of clothing or living in a certain house or apartment or neighborhood or part of town. You can do all of that 
and still be doing it for the purpose of being seen and recognized and approved of by others. So do you see how broad this actually is? Do you see how pervasive of a problem this is? So, so Jesus, to be sure, in the passage, brings up the specific examples of religious activities that we do for the approval of others. But the application of this passage, I think, goes far beyond any of that. There is virtually no limit to the number of things that we do, quote, in front of others to be seen by them. That phrase there in verse 1, to be seen, in the Greek is actually just one word, and it's where we get the word theater in English. As in when you live in this way with this motive, it is like your entire life is theater. It's all done for the express purpose of being noticed and applauded by other people watching. So if we are doing anything in our lives primarily for that purpose, to be seen and recognized and applauded and approved of by others, I think Jesus is speaking to us here as followers of Jesus. Now, I do want to offer two quick clarifications on this. I think it's important that we don't hear what Jesus is not saying in this passage. So, so first, Jesus is not saying, do not practice righteousness. He doesn't stop his sentence there. To, to Jesus, practicing righteousness is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very, very good thing. Second, Jesus also doesn't say, never practice righteousness in public. He says to be careful about doing that, but he doesn't say you can't ever do it. In fact, in just the previous chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, he tells us that we should, quote, let our light shine before others in order that they might see our good deeds and glorify God. So the warning that Jesus gives in this passage is not against doing righteous things or even with where, in what setting we do righteous things. It's with why we do those things. It's with where our motivation lies in doing them. It is what we're doing for God or is it for the applause and the praise of other people? Jesus' concern in this passage is with those who do the things that they do for the purpose of being seen and approved of by others. And Jesus actually has a name in the passage for those who operate with this sort of motivation. So look with me at verse 2 in the passage. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. So people that live for the approval of other people, in Jesus' words, become hypocrites. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that word, hypocrites. Today's teaching is just all word studies. There's a vocabulary quiz at the end, just if you're wondering. But here's what's interesting about that word, hypocrite. In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite was not actually a negative word at all. It wasn't an insult. It wasn't a critique. It was just another word derived from the world of theater. Generally, actors in a play in Jesus' day would wear masks to portray their various characters. The word for those types of actors was the word hypocrite. Best we can tell from history... Jesus was actually the very first person to use that word hypocrite as a critique. 
as a statement about a negative behavior to avoid. Jesus' point was that when we and others live for the approval of people, it is like we too are wearing a mask. It's like we are actors in a play. When we do that, in other words, it's not true righteousness that we're practicing. It's theatrical righteousness. It's all a show put on for other people. And I think this helps answer a question that I would imagine a lot of us have when it comes to living for the approval of others. And that's, how do I know when I am living for the approval of others? How do I know when the approval of other people has an unhealthy place in my mind, in my heart, in my life? How do I know when that's going on, when that's beginning to rule over my life as a motivation? Here's how I think Jesus would answer that question. When you become a hypocrite about things that you do, that's how you know. When there is hypocrisy in your life about a certain behavior, a mindset, or activity, there's a pretty good chance then that approval has a greater place in your heart than it needs to have, at least in that area of your life. Or maybe let's ask the question slightly differently so we can help diagnose this in ourselves. Where is there a contradiction between your public persona and your private priorities? Where is there a contradiction between your public persona and your private priorities? You'll notice I made all of those words start with P, so as to be most helpful to you. Where is there a contradiction there? Where is there a disconnect between the image of yourself that you project to other people and the priorities that you actually have, especially when nobody's looking? Is there any arena of your life right now where people would be confused or, or surprised or even shocked if they had 24-7 access into your life. That's usually a pretty good litmus test for hypocrisy. So, for example, the people that view you, that see you as a person who is passionate about prayer and intimacy with God, would they be confused if they saw what your private prayer life looked like or, or maybe the lack of a prayer, private prayer life. The people that see you here on Sundays lifting your hands in worship to God, would they be surprised if, if they saw the types of things that your time and your energy and your money go to on a regular basis? People that think of you as a person with an incredible marriage, that just think the relationship you have with your spouse is just something to be admired, would they be shocked to discover how you speak to each other when no one else is around? People that look to you as an example of what it looks like to, to navigate dating in a healthy way, would they be surprised to know what happens between you and the person you're dating when nobody else is there? Or come up with your own example. You fill in the blank, right? But are there any areas where people would immediately spot a, a misalignment in your life between your public persona and your priorities when nobody's looking? If so, I think that's what Jesus is calling here hypocrisy. And listen, I don't say any of that to call you out or to put the spotlight on you or, or to shame you. I don't, I don't say it for any of those reasons. I say it simply to help you identify areas of your life that may be impacted by the desire for approval from other people. 
Hypocrisy in your life is usually an indicator that at least in that area, we are living for the approval of others in unhealthy ways. So I'll tell you what asking this question about my life convicted me of a couple years ago. I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me then that often I will work a lot harder to study the Bible and learn the Bible when I'm going to be teaching it to you guys than I do when I'm just studying it for my own benefit. Now, there's some of that that makes sense, right? Obviously, the stakes are a little bit higher when I'm teaching the Bible here. You don't want to lead anybody astray. I get all of that. So, so maybe there's a certain amount of that that should create diligence when I'm studying the Bible to teach it to you guys. But do you see how if, if I'm not careful, that can easily become theatrical righteousness? That can easily become a situation where I'm projecting a certain image of myself, having a certain knowledge or understanding of the scriptures just in order to present it to you that I don't actually have that priority in my own life. I think very easily that can become hypocrisy. So this is what I'm asking all of us to diagnose in ourselves or perhaps to let our life group help us diagnose this in ourselves. Is there anywhere that your public persona does not match your private priorities? And just because I know our crowd, uh, let me bring up one potential problem area that you may not naturally think of in regards to all of this. Uh, my generation and younger are very much the social media generation, right? So we, we, a lot of us, we don't just go online, we kind of live online. And sometimes I think social media can become a prime outlet for hypocrisy. So, so the people who scroll through your feed on a regular basis and, and see you posting about the things that you're passionate about, the people who see your perfectly posed and manicured photos of you and your friends hanging out or you and your family or you and your kids, the people that see you post all of these different things on social media that build your personal brand or your aesthetic, can I just ask the, the version of you that they see online is that anything close to the real you? Or, or is the whole thing just a front? Is the whole thing a mirage? Is all of that just a ploy to garner the attention and approval and applause of whoever it is that you're trying to impress? Because I'll let you in on a secret, uh, people approving of the online you is not the same thing as them approving of the real you. And if you think those two things are the same, I will tell you that over time, the real you will become lonelier and lonelier with each like and view that comes in. Because we weren't made to be liked and viewed and shared on a screen. We were made to be known by others. Like actually known. And, and having a projection of yourself liked online is a very poor substitute for having the real you known by other people. So I wanna just ask next, uh, what is the danger in living this way? What's the danger at the end of the day of living for the approval of others? Jesus actually answers that question here in the passage as well. This is also found in verse two, the latter half of it. So take a look with me there. Thus, when you give to the needy, 
Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, look at this next part, they have received their reward. So here's the problem with doing things primarily to be seen doing them by others. You ready for it? That's your only reward. That's it. That's as good as it will ever get. That momentary rush of applause, that temporary boost in self-esteem that you get in that moment, that quick hit of dopamine when someone approves of you, that is as far as it will ever go. Now, there's no use in lying about it. That's a good feeling, right? When that happens, it's a good feeling. I think we can admit that, that when other people notice us and approve of us and praise us, that is indeed a reward, which is probably why Jesus calls it in the passage a reward. But at the same time, I bet if we were honest, we would admit that we often put in an awful lot of effort to obtain that reward maybe even a disproportionate amount of effort. Some of us spend our entire lives working tirelessly, maybe even changing and morphing our entire personalities just to hear the occasional good job from another person or from a specific person. And listen, maybe there have been moments where you achieved that, right? Where you were on top of the world because you had so many people speaking well of you and approving of you and saying good things about you. Maybe you've been there and it felt fantastic in the moment. But at the same time, if we're honest, I think we would admit it's never quite enough. You want to know how I know it's not enough? Because we never stop chasing it. I would be willing to bet that there's never been a moment in your life or in mine where we went, you know, I think after having that person recognize that last thing that I did, I think I'm all set on approval for the rest of my life. I think I'm all full. I don't need any more of it from this point on. That has never happened in our lives, and it likely never will because the approval of people does not last. It does not satisfy. It can never provide enduring, lasting, abiding joy in our lives. It can never offer us enduring self-esteem. You will always need more of it if that's what you're living for. And you know, going back to our passage, I find it so interesting that Jesus' warning against living this particular way is not even all that severe. At least it doesn't seem that way, right? So he doesn't threaten hell or lightning bolts from the sky, none of that. He just says, if you live your life for the approval and applause of other people, that's all you will ever get. You've already received your reward. So how does it feel? Does it feel like you finally got everything you've ever wanted? Or does it feel like you'll probably wake up tomorrow morning and start the journey all over again? And listen, that is true no matter what stage we happen to be standing on at the time. Whatever method you are garnering to, to, to get the praise and approval of other people, it will never be enough. You will never do enough good things. You will never be seen as mature by enough people. You will never get enough praise from others to feel like you can stop. There will always be more to do, another achievement to unlock, another acceptance to earn in the eyes of others. There will never be a moment where you go, I'm good now. I've done enough things. I'm a righteous enough person in the eyes of enough people. I'm going to hang it up and just take some time off from all of that. 
Theatrical righteousness will not let you do that. If you live for the approval of people, you will die still wondering if you have it. The danger, Jesus says, is that you will spend your whole life living for the wrong reward. So what should we live for instead? How should we live instead? What should we aim for instead? Jesus is pretty straightforward about how the only way to resist this type of performancism in our life is to stop performing. If your tendency is to do all sorts of things to be seen by others, the only way to fight that temptation in your life is simply to starve it out. Choose to regularly do the things that you do where they can be seen by no one except God himself. So take a look with me at how Jesus puts all of this in the passage. This is verse 3 and verse 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So do you see what Jesus just said? Essentially, he said you need to switch out whose approval motivates you and the things that you do. Instead of doing things in front of others to have them approve of you, you should practice doing things in secret where God approves of you. Now, you may hear that, and if you're cynical at all, you may go, wait, that doesn't sound better, though. Like, if anything, it seems like God's standards are a little bit higher than the people around me, so living for his approval doesn't sound like it's actually going to bring much relief. Not, not to mention, that's still living for someone's approval, right? So that seems like the type of thing we're trying to get out of. So is that really an upgrade to build your life around God's approval? It is, and I'll tell you why. There is one massive difference between the approval of people and the approval of God. With the approval of people, you are perpetually living for their approval, to, to obtain it from them. You're working and changing and performing and impressing, and, and maybe if you're lucky, in the midst of all of that, you get little moments of praise and recognition. With people, you are working for a verdict of approval from them. You are working towards it, in other words. With God, and you have to hear the difference here, you're not working for a verdict of approval, you're working from a verdict of approval. As in, you already have it, if you're a follower of Jesus. Look with me, for instance, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, up on the screen. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He's talking about Jesus there. So that in him we might become the, what's that next word? righteousness of God, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right now, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you have become the righteousness of God. When God looks at you right now, if you're in Jesus, he sees the flawless perfection, the perfect performance, the all-impressive righteousness of Jesus himself. That is how God sees you personally because that is how God sees Jesus, and you are in him, which means that any acts of righteousness you do, anything you do with God's approval in mind is not being done in order to obtain that approval for the first time. It's being done from a place of understanding the approval you already have. God's acceptance of you is not a question mark. 
It's a period. It's an exclamation point in Jesus. It's not something that God is deliberating on right now if you follow Jesus. It's not a verdict from him that you have to prove and perform your way into. It is already in your possession through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. You are accepted and approved of by him no matter what. That's the good news of the gospel. And at the same time, this crazy thing starts to happen when you realize that you're accepted by God no matter what. You start wanting to please him as a result. You start wanting to make God smile. So, so let me try to explain that. Uh, my son, Wit, is seven years old. So with every day that goes by, he is less and less a kid that needs us to do things for him and more and more a slightly smaller human being that can do a lot of things for himself, right? So the other night, he started reading his little sister and us the bedtime story rather than us reading it to them. It was awesome. Really, really cool moment as a parent. Uh, he can make his own cereal for himself as long as the milk jug is 50% full or less. <laughs> if it's over that, it's a little bit of a situation. We're working on it. But he can do that for himself. Uh, he can also do things for other people. So uh, this past week, he was making valentines for his classmates at school and just on his own decided to make one for his teacher. He said, he said, Dad, I made one for my teacher, and I gave her two lollipops because she needs it. Sometimes our class is really bad. <laughs> Just, I love the foresight there, right? So, so he's also doing things for others. He's doing things for me and, and Anna. He's doing things for his sister. And, and I've started noticing that, that at least some of the time, not all the time, he wants me to notice when he does those things for other people. And you know, it's, it's hard to know what exactly is going on in a seven-year-old's heart when that happens, right? Could be a little approval idol just taking root before our eyes. That's possible. But there's part of me that wants to believe it's something different than that too. Because here's the thing. I, I'm not a perfect parent, but I don't think Wit feels like he is lacking my approval as his dad. Right? Like, like he's not wanting me to notice the things that he's doing for others because he thinks his status as my son is dependent upon him doing those things. Right? Like if you went up to Wit today and you were like, hey, Wit, why are you doing all of these good things for other people? I really doubt he would say, well, my dad has made it really clear that if I don't do things like this, I'll be out on the streets begging for money. I don't think that's what's going on in his heart. I don't think he's doing these good things because he feels like his status as my son is in doubt. I, I think he's doing those things because on some level he understands that he already has my approval and my acceptance. And, and because he sees that as secure, he wants to do things that make me smile. He wants to do things that please me. He, he wants to make all of us smile, not because his status in the family depends on it, but because his status in the family is secure, and as an established member of the family, he wants to make other members of the family smile. He wants to bring them joy, and so he does just that with his actions. And, and I say all of that about my son, in part at least, because I don't know that some of you have considered that God the Father smiles at you. 
I don't know if you've considered that you are not trying to obtain his approval. It's not in doubt. You are not waiting to see if God accepts you into his family or not. That's been established through Jesus. That's been set in stone through Jesus. And, and I think that, that because we don't understand that, because we don't understand that God delights in us as his kids, I think some of us fail to see God in that way. We, we are constantly trying to eke out the approval of other people. We're constantly trying to get people to give us just a little bit of what we don't even realize is already ours in Jesus. We, we need people's approval because we think that's the only place that it can be found. We're operating functionally as this empty cup continually needing another person or other people to fill us up with their approval. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is that what is offered to each one of us through the good news of Jesus is a father who accepts us based on the cross, who smiles at us constantly, even when we think we're doing what is right and we fail. Even when we try to do something good and it doesn't have the impact that we thought that it would, the God of the universe, our Father who is in heaven and in the secret place, smiles at us in this moment. And when you understand that, you are no longer an empty cup needing constant approval for other people. You are a full cup ready to overflow with righteousness into the lives of those around you. You're secure. You're working from a place of recognition rather than working for the recognition of others. And that is a life filled with joy because you're content in who you are. You're confident in it. You're not constantly nervous about whether or not you can obtain it in the eyes of other people. So can I just ask you this morning as we wrap up, Whose voice is more important to you? Whose voice is louder in your life? Is it the voice of people and those around you? Or is it the voice of God? My prayer for our community here at City Church is that each of us would be so laser-focused on the Father's voice and the Father's affirmation through Jesus that there is virtually no difference between who we are in private and who we are in public. Because in both places, we are aiming to please the same person, our Father, and his voice is the loudest one that we hear. His voice of affirmation and acceptance. So this morning, as we go to the tables and as we respond by celebrating all of that and that it's our possession in Jesus, I, I just want to ask that you would take the time to sit and to rest in the Father's approval of you. Listen, I, I don't care how much of a failure you think you are. If you are in Jesus, he looks at you and goes, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter and them I'm well pleased. So as we try to say often around here, uh, God doesn't need anything from you. 
which means that he wants everything for you. And listen, if he doesn't need anything from you, that means that you don't need to constantly be on edge about whether or not he's going to accept you. Because of Jesus, it's yours. And now every moment in your life, every interaction that you have, every activity that you participate in, all of that gets to be done from a place of understanding that you're already accepted. And listen, uh, take it from somebody who has spent most of his life trying to garner the praise and recognition of other people. None of that will ever come close to what you get to experience from the Father through Jesus. And so uh, I, I close with, with just that. It's, it's very, very simple. I don't, I don't know that I've told you anything groundbreaking this morning, but I am telling you that if you encounter the Father's approval of you through Jesus, you don't need all that other stuff. And you can be set free from it. So as we go to the tables, as we respond, what we remember is that Jesus went to the cross for us and what we are doing when we take communion as followers of Jesus is that we are quite literally internalizing that reality. We're going, God, I know this thing is true. I get it. I've heard it before. I understand the concept, but I need to internalize it. I need it to work its way through my mind and my heart and my body. I need that to be understood at a soul level, and I need your Spirit's help to live out of that reality. Let me pray for us.